Hey, good morning, church. My name is Eric, and I'm happy to observe the third Sunday of Advent with you all. We are familiar with the perennial question, how early is too early to start listening to Christmas music? Here at TGC, the Sullivan family starts listening to Christmas music as early as Halloween, while many of us mark the start of the season at Thanksgiving. Among the familiar Christmas carols, there are songs that echo the rhythm of the Advent season, a season that is about both joy and longing, celebration and expectation, gratitude and petition. Of the Father's love begotten is one such song. In fact, many hymnologists, yes, it's a profession, uh, believe it to be the oldest congregational hymn. It was written in the fourth century, right around the time Christians began to observe the season of Advent. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. This hymn was written by Aurelius Prudentius Clemens. Originally trained as a lawyer at the age of 57, Prudentius retired and wrote poems and hymns for the last decade of of his life. He wrote this particular hymn to combat the heresy of the 4th century and make a legal case that the Son of God has always, is always, and will always be both with God and with us. The first advent of Jesus was accompanied by a heavenly host who joined their voices to sing, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. While we wait for Christ's second ad, we praise and laud. We dance with joy. And we look forward to Christ's second advent, when every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them will together sing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. In light of the Father's great love for us, please stand with me as I light the third candle of Advent, the candle of love. Today's teaching text comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Such a beautiful passage. Uh, It just kind of speaks to your heart just to hear those, those words read. Um, all right, often, this is the best movie time of year, in my, in my humble opinion. Do you, do you agree with this? I mean, what, what really other time is there to even fight for in that argument? It feels like fall, uh, you know, holiday season. It's just when the Oscar movies come out, it's what, you know, maybe summer blockbusters. Anyway, uh, that's not the main point of this sermon, but uh, often in a big blockbuster movie, uh, before the aliens or the, uh, you know, the asteroid shows up plunging towards the earth or the sea monster comes you know, out of the sea or, or a tidal wave or whatever, there's some regular old person sitting uh, quietly in their control tower or their monitoring station or, or looking through the telescope and there's, there's relative quiet in, in, in the moment. And then all of a sudden things begin to go haywire. All, all the buttons start flashing. Uh, the radar picks up something unbelievable. Uh, the gauges start getting out of whack. There's a big flash across the, stre- the, the, the screen. We, we are trained for this. We, we expect this. Um, we, we've come to know that a story is beginning when there is a flurry of activity out of the silence. Then later, in case you've never seen one of these movies, what happens is um, once the whole world has become aware of the phenomenon, whatever it is, you have a scene later where, where the scientist or, or the teacher or the radar person or the quirky comic relief guy or maybe even the serious star um, explains um, what the implications of the phenomenon are. So Mr. President or General so-and-so or Madam Secretary, if we don't do this impossible thing in the next six days, these cataclysmic events are going to take place and, and usually that means the, the world is going to end. You guys track one? You've seen a blockbuster before? You guys seen a big movie? Ever, ever heard Ridley Scott? Okay, Michael Bay? Anyone? Hands up? Okay, thank you. Advent is a time of longing, and we want you to move on, sir. <laughs> you, have a th- you have a scene where the impossible things are explained, and I just want to tell you why I've even said all this. For our purposes today, folks, the Christmas story is the flurry of activity out of the silence. 
You're tracking with me? And John's letter to the church is the explanation of this impossible thing and the, expl- and the implications for humanity. So you see where we are in movie season? You're situating ourselves. There was a 400-year public prophetic silence in Israel before, the, before the, the accounts that we're familiar with in the Gospels at the beginning started. Generations, think about this, generations of waiting, wondering, hoping, longing, some doubting, some believing, some expecting, some praying, God, would you move in our time? Then all of a sudden, after 400 years of of public prophetic silence, obviously people are still walking in faith, people are still uh, trusting God and walking in in, in in the way of Yahweh, but all of a sudden, all over the place, people start hearing from God. It's like one of those scenes in the movies. Things begin to go haywire. You've got God showing up, you have this mute priest and his wife who are way past the age of of, of childbearing, about to have a, a kid. You've got a poor teen mom who we come to know as Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have these half-drunk night shift shepherds who are approached by this heavenly vision. You've got a paranoid king. You have these traveling astrologers. All of a sudden, the pages just begin to light up. And so we should be cued in that when there's a flurry of activity out of the silence, a story is about to begin. We know so many of the, of the details of Mary and Joseph and the baby and the angels and the shepherds and Herod and the wise men and the star and the nativity, but something can happen to us when this story becomes so familiar or even too familiar. It doesn't shock us and we miss the implications. So I wonder if we can listen this morning uh, to the Apostle John like he's Jeff Goldblum and he's just come in with a bunch of papers and he's like, listen, you have no idea what we have to do because of what's happened here. Can we do that, folks? Great, great. John is telling us what the Christmas story is all about. What we just read is basically one of the most beautiful commentaries on the accounts of the, of the advent of Christ uh, that, that we have in the New Testament. He, he's in the process of, of also telling us what life really is about in, in, in what we just read, who God really is, how you and I can live in line with the deepest, with the deepest purposes of our life, how we can be filled with a love that would never end. That's what this passage is about. You just came in here thinking it was a regular old Sunday. That's what this is about, being filled with a love that will never end. Do you realize, however you're experiencing this moment, how tired, distracted, frustrated, maybe hopeful, joyful, whatever, the possibility of being filled with a love that will never end is present to you right now. The implications really are Jeff Goldblum level staggering. Like we need to have someone shaking papers at us and telling us what the radar says. I I don't think there are, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I don't think there's asteroids headed our way or sea monsters are about to show up off the coast, but we do have a crisis of love on our hands. And this passage speaks about the power of love, of God's love when it's rooted in our communities, when it's rooted in our hearts, when it's rooted in our cities. It talks about love casting out fear. How many of us would appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit doing that today? Love casting out fear. Knowing that love comes to root us in interdependent community like family, even with people who are strangers, even people who we once may have called enemies. That love is meant to give us full life. Whatever the abundant life Jesus is talking about, it is a life rooted in love. 
But we live in the real world, and that's why the Christmas story, we have, to, we have to keep pulling it out of like some ethereal fantasy space and into the real, actual like grit of our day, of our city, of our lives, because we know we're, we're living in a, in a, in a period of, of massively rising anxiety and depression. Right, the, every every you know, couple of weeks or months, there's a new study about the level of our society being incredibly uneasy, uh, incredibly de- you know, deaths of despair are, are crippling. We're, 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 seeing, you know, we're seeing a rise of violence in our city. Just, just yesterday was a massive uh, natural disaster, and, and these things just keep you know, continuing to happen, these tornadoes in Kentucky and the surrounding area. Many of us, as beautiful as this love passage sounds, are wrestling truly with a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. So, of course, our, our generation is not the first to grapple with these things, but we, we do face some stark challenges. The third week of Advent, we light the candle of love. But I think most of us would be willing to admit that a lot of times in our world, love gets significantly reduced in our society, depending on who's using it and for what. Whether we're being marketed to or we're, whether we're being try, you know, trying to be entertained by a story or we're, we're hearing an account from our friends, often we somehow intuitively know, right, even the Beatles, like all you need is love. And, 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 and yet some of the visions and understanding and definitions that we, that we, on a real practical level, work with for what love is really don't work. They really don't, they don't, sat, they don't satisfy and fill. And I'm not going to name all of them, but I just wanted to look really quickly. I think this is important before we get into John's Jeff Goldblum description of what is happening at Christmas, of the way we reduce love in our society. And again, I'm not going to hit all of them, but I'll just give you a couple. One t- sometimes we, we're... we're we're speaking about attraction and calling and calling it love. It's it's one of the the places where we experience reduction. So you've got attraction, or sometimes you know full on lust. It also works in non sexual situations like like friendship, where you have a fondness. But basically, when you begin to initially be drawn to someone, we call that experience love or falling in in, in love. We find someone's appearance or personality pleasing, and it's easy to call that love. Now we know, of course, there's a powerful experience of of falling in love, but we also know that must only be a part of what the fullness of love actually is. Because how you describe something begins to shape the expectations. And so if we expect this exact type of feeling to sustain us through an entire life, we, we know from experience that, that that type of thing rises and falls. So, so whatever love is, it must, be, it must transcend the borders of attraction. It must transcend the borders of lust or even fondness. So another way we, uh, we reduce love is, is we call it basically just agreement. If you agree with me or you affirm the things I affirm, then, 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 then you love me. So we align ourselves in our society around ideological lines, um, and we are being loving when we affirm someone's belief system or agree with their approach to life or their politics. And I'm not, say, I'm not you know, pinning this on any, any one side of the political spectrum or ideological spectrum. All of us seem to do this. You love me if you agree with me and affirm my choices. But this gets especially ugly when you, do, when you see it on the flip side, is if, if you disagree with me or don't affirm my choices, you hate me. Like we talk in these unbelievably stark terms that love is equal to agreement or affirmation. 
I'll give you another. There's two more. And, and, and these last two, I think, particularly show up in the family space quite a bit. Many of us have carry real wounds in our life from these second two reductions. The first is, is where, we, where, where we are saying love, but actually what we're talking about is protection. Basically, we're promising safety, and that is our primary expression and understanding of what love is. We say we, say we are loving when we primarily mean we're attempting to keep so, someone safe. Now, again, this can especially uh, be easy to fall into when you're thinking in terms of parenting. And of course, protection, it can be a, and it, it is a serious reduction, and here's why. It makes the space for love primarily the experience of communicating fear, <laughs> Of course, love involves protection, but if that's all love is, it's a serious reduction. And sometimes we use these things so interchangeably that it begins to reduce our expectations, but our soul, on the intuitive, in the intuitive space of our soul, is made for love at its broadest capacity. So these reductions do damage to us. I'll give you the last one, and we're not obviously going to name every reduction, but another is provision. Some of you know this from, from growing up. It was a, your parents' way of showing love was to provide for you. And the experience of having material needs met but not emotional needs met left a gap in your heart. When we mostly make love about providing for someone's needs, it, it, it puts us in this reduced space. Don't you know I did all of these things because I loved you? Yeah, I would have actually just sort of liked to have you around. So, we're, we're, you know, we're treading lightly here, but many of our temporary feelings get labeled as love. And this is some Jeff Goldblum level shocking stuff about love. Like uh, one of the most shocking things, apart from love being essential to the nature of God that the, the Bible says about love, is that love never fails. And that's where we kind of start to write it off as unrealistic. But the Bible is saying that the love, the type of love that comes from God, that issues from his very character, that is actually part possible for us to root our lives in and come to define our experience now and forever, that that type of love never fails. So if love ends, it was something else. I'm going to let you talk about that in your small group. So each of these reductions, of course, right, attraction and, and provision and protection, each of these reductions might be a part of love, but when any of them becomes something like the whole, we get a dangerous distortion. Love, love may be lacking or challenging, challenged if one of these things isn't present, but if any of these reductions becomes our understanding of love in its fullness, we are in trouble. So we need a passage like this, the poetry of it, the inspiration of it, the possibility of it, to lift our eyes up from our, our, our sort of everyday experience of, of these reduced forms of love to say, okay, this is giving us maybe the most robust picture of love in the universe. And it defies categories in ways it shatters our natural expectations. The way John is talking about love here, it, he broadens it into something that can truly hold the world, but also something that can shape the smallest actions of our lives with profound implications. What, what a thing. 
The passage speaks about love and the reality of God coming to us. It's, it's an interpretation of the Christmas story. And I want to give it, I want to explore it together in two broad categories. One is God's love coming to us. What does it look like from God's perspective for this love to invade our lives? And then what does this love look like when it's received by us and then shared by us? So we're gonna move rather quickly because there's so much, so much here. But this is like behind the scenes of the Christmas story. This is what's going on. It, the, the, we, we read, God is love. Love comes from God. God's love initiates action. For, for God, love is not just an idea or a theory. It, oh, his love initiates action. Also, God's love is costly. And God is the one who pray, pays the biggest cost for the costliness of his love. And God, oh, I, I, so this pa- passage gives us a staggering picture of, of, of what is essential about God. So I want to quickly see this together. This is, this is God's love coming to us. The first thing that this passage says is that love is essential to God's nature. This is something we talk about quite a bit at Trinity Grace, so we're, we're not going to you know, stay here too long today. But in this passage, you see God as Father, you see God as Son, you see God as Spirit. God is also implied as the Creator, the one who comes to us in, at a specific point in history, and the God who can fill this room and somehow mysteriously fill your body, fill your life today. So there's lots of implications for this, that God is three in one. It sort of blows our minds a little bit. Our church is named after this reality, the Trinity showing grace to us. That's how our church got got its name. But there's lots of implications. Love is essential to God's very nature. It means that God is not a static being of so low power. But before there was anything, there was love. And that means love is essential to the very nature of, of of life in the universe. Love shapes the fabric of reality. Before there was anything, there wasn't just static power or a being of great might, but a dimensional being that defies our categories that has love in his very nature. So God wasn't, this is important, God wasn't lonely before creation. It was like, I need some friends. Let me make people. No, God was experiencing an overflow of joy in God's own being and said, I want to have others in on this. I'm going to overflow the way an artist says, I must make something. That's sort of the way we can un- understand the, the, the motivation. for. So he created as a, way to, as a way to share the love, to share the joy, the fruit of God's spirit. So when God's spirit overflows into a human life and meets their actual character formation, what happens? What's the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The things that were overflowing between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the beginning. So love is essential to God's nature. And that brings us to the next part. So love is God sharing his life. That's a way to to broaden our understanding of love is that love is God sharing his life. This is how God showed his love among us was he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So whatever God is doing in the Christmas story, He's not coming to us as a list of ideas or principles, but as a person. And somehow as a person that through relationship, we can actually live through this person. This is the Christian gospel. And so often we slightly reduce it down to looking at an example that we're supposed to follow. 
That's not what Christianity is about. It is about you being embraced and filled and forgiven and literally the spirit of God being shared with you in such a way that you have a taste of whatever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were sharing before the foundations of the world and that we live through that reality in a relational way. So much more than just a list of do's and don'ts of behavior that we can have a share in the type of life that God possesses, we need Jeff Goldblum to shake some papers at us. The phrase born of God keeps showing up in John's writing, that being offered and receiving the love of God in this personal, person of Jesus way begins a new type of life in us, born of God. That's what the scripture means when it says eternal life. It's not saying just um, a life after you die. It's saying the quality of life of the age to come becomes, comes to define your life today. It's a share in God's life. That's what the angels are announcing. That's what Mary has a sense of when she erupts in, in the Magnificat. That's, that's why the wise men travel from afar. God is opening something that changes everything. This flurry of activity from the silence is that God himself is coming to invade not just the enemy-occupied territory of earth, but literally the selfishness-occupied territory of my heart and to make me family forever. But also... God is realistic about the world, the brokenness of it, the brokenness of us, our, our, how much selfishness is rooted in us. And so God knows that love costs God greatly. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is, this is so important to why God couldn't have just sent a, a, a list of ideas or a book with principles in it. The world is broken which most of us are like, yes, I'm on board with that. But then we are also contributors to that brokenness, right? The line of, of good and evil for, for, runs down the center of our own hearts. We're contributors to the brokenness of the world. So that means for many of us, spiritual numbness or apathy or, or distraction or, or death or injustice or selfishness, they become the norms of our world. And so just trying to take a beautiful idea like the love of God is available and paste it on my heart doesn't work. Actually, I need something that can remove my brokenness, that can remove my sin. And that's, Jesus is, something must break us out or in, in this case, someone must break us out. Jesus is born to confront the power and penalty of sin. That's what's going on on the cross, the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is born to, to deal with our natural addiction to selfishness, to make room for actual love, not just self-interest disguised as love in our lives. But Jesus also comes willing to take the full burden of sin on himself. What he asks of us, what he requires... He fulfills what he requires. He fulfills. I, I try to talk about this with my kids, and they're, they're in here right now, so I'm not going to embarrass them about the way we, we, we sort of go around about this. But like, try to explain something like, you know, Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. Well, why on earth? Would, why, not, why not just, hey, just forgive me. I can just forgive you. Like, what's the dying part? What's, what's, what's going on there? 
Why is that necessary? That seems absurd. This symbol of the Christian faith is a man dying in this horrific way of, of public execution and shame. What's going on there? And the reality, one of the spiritual realities of the world, as real as the, as the uh, physical reality of gravity, is that sin, whatever that is, results in death. And I understand there's, both of those are loaded terms. But the reality is that sin always brings death. A way to understanding is that sin is always a separation from true life. If God is the source of true life and to sin is to separate yourself from God, then you are separating yourself from true life and what comes into that vacuum is death. And that happens when you lie. When you lie. Every lie is a separation from true life. It's a separation from the, the God quality of life in our world that can exist between humans, that can exist between us and God. But we do damage to the imago Dei in us. We do damage to the, the capacity of our own souls because every lie is a separation from true life. Every act of violence, every unchecked anger, every time we belittle someone, every, every time we take away their humanity, every time we numb out through our addictions, every time we ignore the reality of God, we are separating from true life. So why on earth the cross is because Jesus is saying that death should be passing to each of you and I'm going to take it on myself. So on the cross, he cries out to Telestai. Basically, he has become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He has borne the brunt of our separation from true life in and of itself. So he dies physically, and then he commends his spirit into the Father's hands, and he offers us, as, as the atoning sacrifice, he offers us life because of, because of his death. And that, that, is, that, is, that is gospel. The gospel means forgiveness. Everything you've ever done, give up all hope of a better past, but everything you've ever done is covered by what Jesus has done on the cross. And now, because of that forgiveness, you can experience full embrace and union that will never go away. Because you're not gonna be ever better at making mistakes or failing or sinning than God is at redeeming. This is the stuff we say all the time. But we need Jeff Goldblum to shake the papers at us, folks. We need for this to burn in our bones a little bit. God's invitation to us is love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. God is, just, is saying to you this morning, not just as a theological idea, saying to you this morning, I want you to have a share in my life. I want you to have a forever share in my love. I've dealt with whatever barriers may have been there to that love being experienced. I am offering forgiveness and union with me forever. And I'm offering you a share in my way of loving in this world forever as well. That's the, the Christmas story from God's perspective, coming to us in this way. What does it look like for us to receive that? And there's some overlap here, and we're gonna move re re really quickly. If you wanna sneak a look back to the, the clock back there, that's how much time we have left, so don't flip out. Um, it's a Christmas gift to all of you to have that, and to me as well. So what, what, what does it look like? And, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about basically how someone experiences salvation. But sometimes in the Christian story, we, we imagine that salvation is just some beginning marker, like the first step. 
as opposed to seeing that salvation is become, has become our very life. It is the way we live in the world. So we're going to break this down into sort of constituent parts, but we're seeing it also as a whole. What happens when someone comes into uh, the re- relationship with God through Jesus? What happens when we receive what Christ has brought us in the Christmas story is, is birth, forgiveness, filling, courage, and compassion. But that also... Any individual one of those can come to define an experience in a season of our life. So we're going to look at the parts, and we're going to look at the, whole, at the whole. And we're going to do it in 13 minutes and 36 seconds. Professional speakers always reference the time. It's a really good thing. <laughs> Birth. The first way that we experience, the first way that salvation is described in the New Testament is that we are born of God, that we come alive in a new way, that we've been going through our life for 16 years or 22 years or 48 years or 72 years, and then somehow through relationship with Christ and faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, you come alive in a new way, as bananas as it is for someone to talk about being born again. That's actually one of the only ways to understand the real experience of coming into relationship with Christ. Jesus has been born so that you and I can be born into the family of God. This is the subject of late night conversations across the ages. I'll give you an excerpt from one of them. Nicodemus, a very religious man in Jesus' time, was trying to do the Yahweh thing, was trying to walk in the covenant, was trying to, to, to follow, and Jesus tells him something pretty staggering. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus asked the question, how can someone be born when they are old? Jesus, do you not know how things work? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. There's a physical being born and there's a spiritual being born. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound but cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. God is saying, I'm gonna put the actual nature, quality, reality of my life, my spirit in you, and you're going to come alive in a new way. Some of you have been attempting a religious life without this birth, and it is not working. It is a miserable experience to try to walk the way of Jesus without the union with Christ that comes through surrender to this gospel and the filling of the spirit. The first thing is birth. The second that comes right along with it is forgiveness. That, as we just said on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Everything necessary is done so that you can be forgiven. The symbol of it is the veil of the temple being torn. That access is, is now open to the very heart, the nature, the presence of God. Jesus has been born so that we can be born. Jesus has been born so that we can be forgiven. And implied in all this, right, these things, these constituent parts, they all go together as a whole. So there is the birth, the spiritual birth, which involves the, the, the forgiveness of God coming crashing into our lives. The felt experience of that is what so often people react to emotionally when they come into faith, is this feeling of being forgiven and welcomed and loved. But right alongside it is the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you're... you're Basically, the veil is torn so that now you can become the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. 
This is a way to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us, that he has given us of his spirit. Now, if God has made a deposit in your life by the Holy Spirit, and you've become a part of the family of God, and God doesn't change, and his promises are not revoked, and you didn't do anything to earn it, that that means you're just as secure right now in the family of God as if you were already in heaven. And we wrestle with the brokenness of sin, and we wrestle with our selfishness, and we wrestle with the trauma of this world, but the reality is perfect love casts out fear because you are, have a deposit from the Holy Spirit now that will never be revoked. Because of your accomplishments? No, because of what Jesus has done. He's looking at us the way he looks at Christ's accomplishment on the cross. This is what it is to receive the gospel. The last two things that it, it, it impacts our life with is, is courage. This, this perfect love casting out fear reality. I love what it says here. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Church, this is, this is where we need to be right now. Do you know the love God has for you? Some of you do. Many of us do. Are you relying on the love God has for you? Are you consciously leaning on it? Are you consciously living by it? And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in, in God and God, in, whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in them. This is how we, uh, whew, I can read. Here we go. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, in this world, we are like Jesus. This is the unbelievable reality of the gospel. In one moment, you're declared like Jesus. And the rest of your life, you learn to live the way of Jesus. The theological reality for this is justification and sanctification. In one moment, you receive it all. Nothing held back. And then over the course of a lifetime, you grow into living actually like Jesus in your very life. And one of the ways we do this is knowing and relying on the love of God. Perfect love, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The way of courage in the world is the way of knowing and relying on the love of God. Fear can destroy our lives from the inside. Any Dune fans? Fear is the mind killer. All right, sorry about that. I'm big, big blockbuster movie day today for me. But the way out of fear is not ignoring it or pretending it's not there. No, any of you who have experienced like physical manifestations of anxiety, no, if you could, you would have turned it off in a moment. So the reality is, is, is uh, pretending it isn't there is, isn't an approach. And, and also, in a broken world, fear does have some purpose. I've been reading this book on how we breathe, and it, it talks about some um, experiments with a few people who've ha you know, had the rare phenomenon of having their amygdala damaged, so they couldn't experience fear. And as amazing as that may sound initially, it puts you in a bunch of really dangerous situations. There's a, a story of, of a woman who, you know, her amygdala was damaged. She couldn't experience fear. She gets basically attacked and taken away to this place. The attacker gets spooked and runs off. She falls and back to the car. She's like, can I get a ride back to town? So fear does, you know, have some purpose. Maybe, you know, like run off and hide from this dangerous person. 
Our way out of fear in this world is not through ignoring it. It's through bringing the love of God to bear on our fears, the promises of God to bear on our fears. God's love, so fear has a way of overrunning its boundaries in our minds, in our conscious experience. And, and the way we push it back is that love, God's love is meant to shape and define those spaces. So we have to bring God's love and promises to bear on our fears. And I wanna tell you, I'm not saying that's a, a flip the switch kind of thing. That often takes help. It often takes prayer. It often takes therapy. There are times where that takes medication. I'm not saying any of the tools that are available to us in God's good world for pushing back fear should be ignored. But the reality is, this is saying that God's Perfect love can cast out fear. Are we learning to bring our fears into the light of God's love for us, what he says our true identity is, what he says our future is? Because there are things that as loud as our fears get, they cannot touch our inheritance. They cannot touch your truest identity. And they will pass. Your fear on on the timeline of eternity is gonna be like this. And God's love is in each direction as far as you could possibly reach. His perfect love casts out fear, and that is meant to give us courage. And and I specifically, as someone who's wrestled with anxiety, this has literally meant taking the ticker tape of thoughts in my mind and the lie that's playing, that it's it's always going to be for someone else, or that some terrible thing is going to happen, or that I'm always going to feel this way, and replacing that with a promise from God about who he says I really am. And, 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 and again, that's, even that's not like flipping a switch, but there's something about taking our thoughts captive and bringing them into the reality of God's love so that we learn to think a new way and we learn to also experience a new way. And sometimes it works the opposite. Sometimes I go body first and then the mind follows. So sometimes it's like move a muscle, change a thought. So I'm stuck and I'm like, ah, I feel like this day is already ruined and it's 11.30 in the morning. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna reset. I'm gonna start over. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, at lunch, I'm going for a run or whatever. Like, we begin to push back on the reality of fear by getting ourselves in the, in the place where we are reminded of God's love. And the last thing is that we become a people of, of the incarnate love of God. We become a people of compassion. We become a people who deeply care for those around us. We, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command that anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let me tell you some good news about the Christmas story. The love of God did not stop being incarnate among us after Jesus' 33 years of physical life on earth. He is meant to be embodied in this church The reality of the love of God is meant to show up in our relationships. The love of God is something you can share in. The love of God is is what we call true life. The love of God is something that is meant to define how we know God and how we know one another. This is the last thing I'm going to say, that this love of God, this is what this passage is saying, is meant to show up in every one of our relationships. So God is saying, the way I love you forgive you, come into union with you. I want you to bend that love towards one another and love each other that way. The love of God in Christ is meant to shape how we do friendship. We are not people who, 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 who say, um, basically like, we're, we're not people who say we are beyond forgiveness. 
We are the people who say, remember how we have been forgiven. We, we are, 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 the love of God in Christ shapes how we do friendship, how we know our neighbors, how, how we live in our marriages, how we parent, how we date, how we communicate online, how we speak to someone who has wronged us. The love of God is meant to filter down into the details of our actual relationships. In Advent, we're longing for something to change the world. In the Christmas story, we're looking back and seeing that something has, but we need that something to happen again. And and one of the ways it is going to happen is that the love of Christ is embodied in a church like this, in a person like you. So in the meantime, as we wait, as we long, we are meant to embody this love of God today. This is the reality of the incarnation, birth, forgiveness, filling, courage, and compassion. If you could just put that list up there one time, because we're going to close, but all of those things together in, 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 you know, encapsulate what happens to us in salvation in the, in the gospel. But I believe that some of you today may need some specific ministry from God around one of these things. So maybe it's like, you know, God needs to deal with you in the area of, of forgiveness. And, and you emotionally experience what God has already said is true of you. And some of you may, may need to offer and extend that forgiveness to someone else. Some of you have been trying to live a religious life, but you've never actually taken that step of surrendering to Jesus. You need to be born in a spiritual way today. And then some of us on the area of like, you know, perfect love casts out fear. We need the Holy Spirit's courage. We need the Holy Spirit's compassion. I believe that these, these realities of our salvation make up the way the Spirit wants to minister to us today. So I'm just going to pray that. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you minister to your church in these ways? Would you, would you impart the new birth in Christ? Would you give us forgiveness? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us your courage? Would you give us your love, your compassion in our real relationships? We turn our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, here's what the rest of the service is gonna look like. We're going to receive the meal of communion. We're going to, to sing and worship. We're going to pray. Then we're going to receive the benediction. And during any of that time, I want to invite you to be responding to the way the Holy Spirit prompts you. Some of those responses might be praying right where you are, an honest prayer to God. It might be inviting the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. It might be coming and kneeling on one of these rugs because we found that for many of us, changing our posture helps us to pray. There's gonna be people up here at the front that would love to pray with you. If any of those words particularly stood out to you, I I wanna invite you, get with someone. Do not leave this space this morning without praying for someone, without taking action on the prompting from the Holy Spirit. So our first step is to take all we've just heard and bring it to Jesus. We come to this meal of grace. If you didn't receive the communion elements, I want to invite you to slip up your hand and someone will bring them to you. I, for one, need them. Yes. I'm going to read to us again as we prepare our hearts from earlier in this letter from John. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Let us hide in the atoning death of Jesus today. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Church, let us rest in this grace this morning. Heavenly Father, bless the bread and the cup. Nourish your church with your salvation today, with the person of Jesus broken and poured out for us. In Christ's name, amen. Churches, you're ready. Let's receive the bread. Broken body of Jesus for you. Let's receive the cup. Cup of salvation of Christ's blood.